Hi, everybody. Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palanker. Here on Media Path, we sometimes get a chance to talk with talented folks like Tony Dow and Bill Mumy, who have carved their own media paths from starring in iconic television shows, moving into other creative behind-the-scenes TV and film jobs, to building their reputations in other areas of art and music. Really looking forward to talking to these guys. And then we also throw in good watching or good reading from other corners of the media landscape. What have you got for us this time, Weezy? So I'm reading a book by Kristen Hanna, who is the it author of uh, of the moment. Uh, the book that I'm reading is called The Four Winds. And The Four Winds tells a story of the depression and the Dust Bowl through the experiences of Elsa, who boldly pulls her family through a devastating chapter in American history. As clouds of dust destroyed crops, humans, land, and lungs, desperate people flooded into California and were treated indecently by the locals who were clinging to jobs and survival during the depression. So the Dust Bowlers were called Okies, and they were shunned, herded into destitute tent camps, and denied basic services like schools and hospitals because they did not pay taxes. It's the age-old story of scarcity, breeding, and tolerance. And it's fascinating to note that otherizing is not always a race-based tendency. It can simply be a survival instinct that we need to push beyond if we're going to evolve into a more collaborative and inclusive future. So Kristen Hanna, she's hot right now, all right? So she wrote Firefly Lane, which is now a Netflix series. She wrote The Nightingale, which illuminates the heartbreakingly difficult role played by women in war, telling the stories of two sisters, each embarking on her own dangerous path towards survival, love, and freedom in German-occupied war-torn France. And this title is also a bestseller in an upcoming film starring the Fanning sisters. The release date has been pushed back due to the pandemic, and it's now set to open in theaters on December 22nd, 2021. After reading The Four Winds, I was inspired to rewatch The Grapes of Wrath, which was a movie that came out in 1940 starring Henry Fonda, inspired by the John Steinbeck book, which had been published only one year earlier in 1939 when the nation had barely recovered from the events of the Dust Bowl. Steinbeck based his epic on his visits to the migrant camps and tent cities of the workers seeing firsthand the horrible living conditions of migrant families. His novel was hailed by working-class readers and panned by business and government officials who took umbrage at its socialist overtones and denounced it as communist propaganda. In fact, the book was banned and burned in Kern County, California, where the Jode family settles. Nonetheless, it was the top-selling novel of 1939 and won a Pulitzer in 1940. Steinbeck blamed the Depression on corporate greed, and he advocated for workers' rights and political and spiritual unity. The film adaptation, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is a potent drama that is as socially important today as when it was made. The Grapes of Wrath is affecting, moving, and deservedly considered an American classic. So I think it's interesting to revisit classic films, and we can do that so much more easily now with all the, the streaming services available to us. Yeah, Steinbeck's uh, maybe one of my top five writers, and I'm so fascinated by that period of time, the Dust Bowl. And you can imagine what the climate change argument would be like today if we had the Dust Bowl going on right. and the apocalyptic things people would be saying about, oh, my God, we're very close to the end of time. It's and then a, other, and then corporate America denying that it has anything to do yeah, with anything. Yeah, good suggestion. Well, I have two streaming things this week. One is Medici. On Netflix, this is the story of the Medici family, the family dynasty in 15th century Italy. The Medicis have been known throughout history as patrons of Italian Renaissance artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Botticelli. 
but they were oh so much more. The Medicis were bankers, and this is three seasons of stories about how they used their money, not only for art, but for power and politics. And what gave them the bulk of their influence was that they were bankers for popes. And they fought against other families that were bankers as well to get and keep the papal business. That was the big fight. And the other powerful families they fought against were the Abrizis and the Pazzis and the Swarzes and the Borgias. It was a constant battle between all these families to stay in the Pope's good graces. And I mean, the politics make this stuff we're doing now like piker stuff. Cardinals were bought and sold. Popes were bought and sold. It was real underworld intrigue. As a matter of fact, all these families were known as the godfathers of the Renaissance. Terrific acting, mainly British and Italian actors and all these. Dustin Hoffman plays Giovanni de' Medici, the guy who started the bank to put them in power in the first place. He's got a great acting turn in this, although he's not throughout the whole thing. And when you see all this played out in Florence and Milan and Rome and Venice, you understand why Italy became ground zero for organized crime. That was Renaissance organized crime. It's really interesting. And there's great Renaissance sex for everybody that looks like Michelangelo painted them into the scene. So it's a good, it's a good. <laughs> now, if you like the Medicis, I also suggest the Borgias, also streaming on Netflix. It started on Showtime. It stars Jeremy Irons as a pope. It's really good. It's another take on the same period. Are the Medicis the family that took in, they like they would sponsor a great artist and they, they would live in the palace and get to, to get to do all of the work that they want, always long to do and have food and shelter. Are they the family that sponsored, uh, Leonardo da Vinci? Yeah, they were all those people. It was all the famous Renaissance artists were somehow connected to the de' Medici family. And there was also a competition between the rich families to see who they could uh, patron, you know, who they could uh, mentor. And uh, there's a great storyline in, in the first two or the second two episodes about Botticelli and how uh, he painted one of the de' Medici women and how it got all sort of entangled into a romantic thing. It's really interesting. It's a it's a it's an interesting series. Sounds awesome. Go ahead. And you and you have one more for us, Fritz. I do. I'm going to talk about another streaming one. This is called One Night in Miami. It's on Prime Video right now. It's a fictionalized account of an event that actually happened in February of 1964. After Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world, Clay met up with three other friends who just happened to be 60s icons as well, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. Now, the screenwriter Kemp Powers conjured up what might have happened in this play that he wrote that the movie was ultimately based on. So it's a, a real event with a fictionalized account. It's about fame. It's about your responsibilities to the public when you're famous. It's about civil rights struggles of that period. And each of the four, in different ways, for different reasons, are seeking their own type of freedom. All the performances are fantastic. Really dangerous to play an iconic figure because people are scrutinizing whether you did a good job. I think these guys all did a great job. Kingsley Ben-Adir was Malcolm X. He was wise and controlled. Addis Hodge as Jim Brown had that quiet rage. Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay becoming Muhammad Ali about halfway through the movie. Really nails Clay's huge master of the universe personality. He was great. But to me, the breakout guy, I have to say, was Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke. Odom played Aaron Burr in Hamilton, 
and he sings all the Sam Cooke songs, and he's got a spectacular high tenor voice, and it eerily matches Sam Cooke's almost unmatchable sound. Really beautiful. It was directed by first-time director Regina King, who won a Best Supporting Oscar for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, the James Baldwin novel. If you like it, I also recommend another Netflix movie about Sam Cooke called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, which is about the battle Sam had in the public and within himself about raising his voice during the civil rights movement. Both are really good. Yes, outstanding. And uh, the acting is spectacular. It it kind of reads like a play. So there'll be moments where you just want to move to a different scene, but stick with it because what starts out as like a, a lot of kidding around and, and you know, you're waiting for them to get to the substance and boy, do they get to it. They kind of move to a rooftop and then everything breaks loose and it's just really illuminating. Yeah. Great, great movie. And now we're going to have some fun. Our guests today started their careers back when television started its career. <laughs> Tony Dow felt like a part of our families when he played Beaver Cleaver's older brother, Wally, on Leave it to Beaver from 1957 to 1963. This is going to be a boomer extravaganza. Since then, he's been an actor and a film producer, a director, and a sculptor with international notoriety. We're going to talk about that, too. Bill Mumy came on the scene in a show that has still got a cult following, Lost in Space, on CBS, where he played Danger Will Robinson, a great character. I'm sure people still do that him, do him on the street, and it's irritating. <laughs> he was on the original Twilight Zone, on the original Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He did five seasons at Lanier on Babylon 5. He's also a singer and a songwriter. And I think what we're going to learn from these guys, even before we start, is in order to survive and have a long career in show business, you have to diversify. And that's what these guys have done. So happy to have a chance to talk to Tony Dow and Bill Mumy. Guys, thanks for being here. Hey, how you doing? Welcome. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Weezy. Hi. How, how are you guys doing? So, so go ahead. I, I wanted to ask if you think that as as child performers or child professionals, how that impacted your creativity. If there's adults waiting around for you to be creative, how does does that inspire you to be more creative, or does it kind of tend to inhibit you in some sense? Go ahead, hit it, Bill. <laughs> um, That's a tough question. I mean, you know, it's a huge question, actually. I'm rarely inhibited. Um, I uh, I think that being able to uh, to work creatively. His creativity has now been frozen. Uh -oh. froze up. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'll start. Okay, yeah, go Tony, ahead, Tony, go for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's interesting because. When I, I was a swimmer and a diver, which is not a real creative kind of a thing. And, um, and when I started working on Leave it to Beaver, I was around tons of super creative people. And, uh, and my, my folks were always creative. My mom was, you know, very cool. My dad was a designer, built houses. So basically, um, I was around all these creative people and, it kind of rubs off, you know, I think I started doing drawing and painting when I was still on Leave it to Beaver. And then I had always planned to, uh, that I wanted to be a sculptor because I like the three-dimensional aspect of it. So I, um, I 
my plan my plan was one of those very romantic things that I come up with occasionally, which is uh, after I retired, I was going to get a little place down by the beach with my wife Lauren, and we were going to uh, have a workshop and have a shop, and you know, well, that didn't happen, but we we did find a great place in Topanga Canyon, and um, so we're doing that here. You know, I have a workshop out in the in the back and um you know it's it's uh i i had i had always wanted to you know do sculpture and i started when i was about 19 uh raising copper things and making different things but now i'm more involved in uh, kind of a heavier sort of a thing where they end up being bronzes and you know, there's a foundry and there's a wax process and it's complicated. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, the lost wax process. I want you to tell us what that is later. But I, I, want, to, I want to go back to Beaver. First of all, your, your start with Beaver was interesting because you were just part of an open casting call with no experience ahead of time. Well, actually, um, the, the way that worked is that um, they had interviewed, I may say some ridiculous thing, like 8,000 kids. Uh, from uh, New York to Los Angeles. And um, so they, they hired Jerry and uh, the rest of the cast, and they did a pilot, which was, um, which was a half-hour thing. I forget what it was called. Uh, it's a small world or something like that. And, um, and, and CBS loved the show, but they didn't like the father. They wanted to have the father replaced. And I... I Yes, they didn't like the uh, the older brother, and I had since you know I had no desire to be an actor particularly. I didn't even know what was involved, and I had a friend who was a lifeguard at one of the pools that I worked out at, and he was an actor. And he took me to the studio one day, and uh, he thought it would help him get a part as a father and son you know team, and I ended up getting this part. Well, did a couple of pilots, didn't sell. In the meantime, a guy named Harry Ackerman, who is a famous sort of producer, old-time guy in Hollywood, and uh, he was the executive producer on that. And they, Universal wanted a, a, a guy that was really experienced, so they, they assigned Harry to the Beaver show. And this was right when they were trying to replace the father and the older son. And... Uh, so Harry said, well, look, I just did a show with this kid. I don't know. I mean, you know, he's really green. He hasn't done much, but maybe you want to take a look at him. So they called me in, and uh, the next thing I know, they, I'm talking about doing the part, you know. So it, I did fall into it that way. And I was always a large casting call. I'm sure I can count those 8,000 other kids that didn't, <laughs> didn't get it. But, For wow. sure. Yeah. I, I was always struck by the layered characters in, in Leave it to Beaver and by the attention to detail. For example, a half-eaten apple in Larry Mondello's pocket. What are some of the specifics that you were able to bring to Wally being the one teenage boy on the set? Yeah, um, well, you know, I was um, not being a real versed actor. I used a lot of my personality and stuff. And the, the first director we had was a guy named Norman Tokar, who really a, a great director, especially with kids. Did a lot of work for um, Disney. 
And he's the guy who came up with the apple in uh, Larry Mondello's hands. <laughs> uh, and he came up with, I used to do that. I'm yeah. Sure, I don't know if you remember that. But he came up with that. So he, it was interesting because he um, he always was looking for a mannerism, you know, for a kid to do. And uh, he was just, he was great at that. And that's, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great trick when I was directing. That's one of the things I did. Ah. Yeah. Hey, hey, Tony, before we get out of that era of your life, uh, what are your thoughts? And I get Bill to respond to this too, because he found fame at a very young age. What are your thoughts about, you know, the, the phenomenon of childhood fame and how it's a tough thing to navigate for the child and for the parents. And uh, how do you feel about that era in your life? You came out of it beautifully. You're an artist and sort of a self-contained human being, but not everybody is successful in rising up out of that period of their lives. Well, I, uh, I was really lucky because my parents were really grounded. And uh, Joe Conley and Bob Mosier, who were the uh, executive producers of the show and Norman Kokar, director, were really conscious of trying to keep the kids as normal as possible. As a matter of fact, they, they asked our parents not to allow us to watch the show because they didn't want us to think we were funny or anything special. Wow. And uh, so anyway, they were, it was very cool that uh, we were surrounded by people like that. And uh, on the set, for example, we were protected. I remember like the first or second day, there was a, uh, a grip who dropped the, a flag or something and said, God damn it. And uh, the uh, producer came over to the assistant director and told, get rid of that guy. Okay. We wow. don't want that language on the show. That's interesting. So anyway, I, you know, I was really lucky in, in that respect. And I also got to spend my summers doing kid things with my friends and, you know, but it is tough. I, I think it's very difficult, uh, especially in today's world, but, even back then. What do you think, Bill? Bill Bill's back. He, 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 he went to a Marriott near his home and he's no, back connected. I got sent to the cornfield. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. But uh, now I'm on my phone and I, I'm, I'm here. Um, so let, thank you for welcoming me back. Um, I, I'm kind of in the same situation as Tony in the sense that my parents were very supportive of my creative energy. And, you know, um, my they were well-to-do when I worked, and I was an only child, uh, and they had me late in life. And my mother had been uh, a, a secretary at 20th Century Fox for about 11 years before I was born, and my grandfather had been an agent uh, in the, the 30s. He had been an agent for writers and, and directors, and, and Boris Karloff was his most famous on-camera client. He got him the Frankenstein auditions and negotiated those deals. But uh, my family wasn't impressed or intimidated by show business. And I really wanted to do it. I broke my leg when I was four years old and I couldn't go out and run around on the cul-de-sac in Beverlywood with all my friends, which was like our gang in the 50s. It was an unbelievable, great little oasis of people in time. Uh, I couldn't go out, so I stayed in and, and watched Zorro and Superman with George and, and, and uh, Guy Williams, uh, those caped adventurers. And man, something just, a pilot light got lit inside me and I, I just was 
bugging my folks to get into the TV and be like those guys. And, uh, you know, you can't escape your destiny. And, and I was just this red haired, freckled faced, little high energy kid. And um, everything worked out okay in terms of my, my acting. It was always um, a pleasure for me to do it. I really liked being able to be all the different types of characters and work in all the different arenas with the great iconic people that I worked with when I was young. And was Lost I- in Space the first uh, thing of note you did? No, no. I had worked for uh, six years before Lost in Space. I'd probably done a hundred well, I don't know, 100, close to 100 episodics and probably six or seven films before Lost in Space. Wow. All those Twilight Zones and Disney things. Uh, Tony had mentioned uh, the great Norman Tokar, who directed, I think, like, what was it, 100 episodes of Leave it to Beaver. He directed uh, several Disney films that I did when I was young. He was a great director for kids. Although in terms of the profanity and somebody being tossed off with the beaver set, uh, I don't know. You should have heard some of the stuff Cloris Leachman and Jonathan Harrison used <laughs> to say. <laughs> that was a different story. It was quite a lot of blueness that I was exposed to, but it was all good. It was all okay. Hey, Billy. Well, do, you, do you think? Yeah, go ahead, Tony. I was just going to say, tell him the Alfred Hitchcock story. I love that story. Really? Okay. So, um, you know, I uh, as. I never had too many negative experiences with with people, but but Alfred Hitchcock was a negative experience for me. I um I was starring in an episode of his television series that he directed. It was called Bang Your Dead, and in a nutshell, story of this kid whose uh, friends are all playing cops and robbers outside and cowboys and Indians, and his uncle comes home says, "I got a present for you." He's been on holiday. And uh, the, the boy is anxious to, to find out what it is. So he goes through his uncle's suitcase, finds a gun, a revolver, a six a, a revolver and a box of bullets. And he assumes that this is his present. So he takes the revolver. He grabs a handful of bullets, puts one or two in the chamber, spins it around and goes out to play with his friends. Over the course of the episode, he slowly is spinning and filling the, the chamber of, of the revolver so that by the uh, climax of the, the show, he's got a loaded gun where, you know, he's been pulling the trigger and spinning it. Now, you know, next time he pulls the trigger, someone's going to get shot. The, the tension is great. It's a wonderful anti-gun or children's safety gun story. Well, Hitchcock was directing it and I was in every scene and you can only work. Ex- we shot it out by uh, at Universal where Tony was working at Review on on uh, Beaver at the time. So anyway, the clock was running out. They were gonna lose me in a few minutes. So they wanted me to stand in for myself for this last shot. The the welfare worker told the assistant director, you're gonna lose Billy in five minutes. They said, oh, we don't wanna get this one last shot in. So they had me stand in for myself, which was, I was seven years old. (laughs) And it was fine. It was fine with me that I was standing in for myself. But the, uh, the reality was I wasn't a trained stand-in. It wasn't my gig. It wasn't what I do. So I'm futzing around, you know, on my mark while they're trying to light me. I'm moving around. So Alfred Hitchcock rises up out of his chair. Uh, he was a very um, intimidating physical presence. You know, he was a big man. He was constantly sweating. <laughs> he wore this black suit with a tight tie. You know, in retrospect, he looked like Job of the Hut. 
So he gets up out of his chair and he walks over to me and he bends down and he whispers into my ear and no one else could hear him but me. And this is absolutely exactly, exactly what Alfred Hitchcock says to this seven-year-old kid who's been working every minute for him. If you don't stop moving about, I'm going to nail and I'm going to nail your feet to your mark. And the blood will come pouring out. <laughs> Milk. So stop moving. Wow. He'd be in HR prison if he did that now. Right? So, so, so they get the shot. They finish the shot. They wrap me out for the day. I'm walking up the hill. Tony knows exactly where I'm talking about, to the parking lot past the wardrobe department where my mother's 1959 pink Cadillac was parked. <laughs> and I'm walking and I'm telling my mother, and he, he was going to nail my feet to the floor. And talking about blood coming out. My mother looks at me. She goes, oh, honey, he's British. They have a different sense of humor. For <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. I don't remember the gun part of that story, Billy. I just remember the, uh, the nailing the foot to the, the floor anyway that so the whole story was you've you got the whole picture and i know you'll never forget it again well so, i uh, want to talk to you uh, just really quick uh, bill before we get past your your uh storied childhood and i'm sure there's just a million of these fabulous tales but uh as we've moved through the past four years i was reminded often of the terrified adults bowing down to an evil child with far too much power which you portrayed so perfectly and in the It's a Good Life episode of The Twilight Zone, are you hearing this often from folks that that little boy reminds them of someone who maybe was president for about four years very recently? Yeah, there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, comparisons to Trump and Anthony Fremont uh, in the media over the last four years. And certainly, I guess it's applicable. <laughs> <laughs> of course, my perspective of Anthony Fremont wasn't quite the same as my perspective on Trump. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a classic show, you know, and um, it's held up really well. A wonderful cast. Great. You know, it's drug. one of those shows that was never copied. You know what I mean? Twilight Zone was so interesting and quirky. Did Rod Serling hang around the set when they were doing? He right? did. He did. What I think is remarkable, one of the great things about the Twilight Zone shows and a lot of those an anthology shows back from the uh, golden age is there was no regular cast. Every week, it, every you know week, they had a whole different cast. So nobody got an attitude on that project. Nobody kind of became the star. Rod Serling was the star. Um, and what I recall, I did three of the original ones and I did the, the movie and then I did two of the newer ones. But uh, what I recall about Rod Serling very well, I mean, specific little memories, but what I really recall is that he was a very light presence, very easy to hang with, a very friendly and talkable and told jokes. And every department head uh, on the, the stage when he came on the set to do his wraparounds or whatever, they were all looking forward to talking to him about, you know, next week's script and what they were going to use for this or that. And he was hanging around and he was very casual. Then, of course, when he's on camera, he was so kind of stolid and, and this somewhat dark. But that was really his his uh, on screen, you know, uh, cast member that he created for himself. I remember him as being very light, friendly and, and nice. And of course, he and I went out for uh, margaritas every night when we wrapped. 
<laughs> sure, and a cigarette. Just kidding. <laughs> but he was such a singular talent, you know. I mean, the Twilight Zone. It's like saying Bob Dylan. You know, you can't you can't separate Rod Serling's uh, iambic pentameter and his writing skills from all of those episodes. Right. Of course, he had some great supporting writers that worked with him, but um, it, it, I, I put him right up there with the in the pantheon of the Dylans of our current world. Yeah. Did, did you have the run of the lot, Tony? Uh, yeah, we really did. we really did, and we we first started on. Um, uh, RKO. Well, let's see. It was it was in the valley. It was um, CBS Studio Center. It turned into Radford. Radford, yeah, yeah, Radford. But uh, we started off there for a couple of years, and then we went over to the, the the Universal lot when Review bought Universal. So is that why the Cleavers moved? Because you know it's going to be like a different exterior. Yeah. So it was it was amazing because we were able to. Um, to, to go anywhere, do anything we wanted. And as a matter of fact, the tour guy who started the tour system, he, uh, he was trying to get, he was trying to talk to Wasserman about being able to take people on tours. And, you know, he thought it'd be a good idea and they didn't know. So he started walking people around from soundstage to soundstage. And uh, it, it was sort of interruptive because then they all wanted to meet you and they, whatever, and it was noisy. And so, then they decided, well, they put him in put him in golf carts or do something else. I don't know. But anyway, the end result is, you know, he, he bought a bunch of those trams and now they make more money than the movie guys do. <laughs> but, uh, it, uh, there was, when we did the second series, which was in the 80s, you know, that was after the whole back lot had been developed. And uh, we used to run around the shark, uh, you know, the... Uh, the shark um, attraction, Jaw. yeah, Jaws attraction, and uh, and then we we had uh, we were able to go into different sets. I remember one of the cool experiences. We went into a set with the kids. There were kids on the show, the new Leave with the Beaver, and so we um, we went on a set because we heard that Spielberg was doing um, uh, what was his series, Amazing Adventures? What was it called? Mm-hmm. Amazing stories. Uh, anyway, so we walked in and there were like five of us or something, four of us. And we were looking and he was way up on the thing on an airplane. And, he, you know, it, it was really fascinating. And then he started coming down. You know, now we're deciding, well, should we run or what should we do? <laughs> <laughs> and he comes down and then he, he walks right up to us. And I thought for sure he was going to say, well, you guys get the hell out of here. You know, we're trying to work. We're trying. And so he said, hi, I'm uh, Steven Spielberg. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he put his hand out, wow. shook hands. And uh, he said he's always enjoyed the show or some, you know, something like that. Wow. But there are those kind of adventures that we've uh, that we run into when you're able to wander around a lot. Yeah. Play tan on the Western streets. Those classic days, you know, I, I was lucky like you, Tony, and I got to work at all the different lots. I was parked at 20th Century Fox for five years, but I worked on all the different lots and they were magical places. And uh, I, I don't think it's because I was seeing that through a kid's eye at all. I think they were just really magical. Oh, places. They were, yeah, they were. It was amazing. They were fantastic. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can imagine 
we didn't have a lot of kids on the show, but maybe we'd end up with four or five on the show. And, uh, you know, we'd go out on the Western Street or New York Street or something and play hide and seek or play tag or play, you know, whatever, which that's a pretty good set for a kid to be able to goof around on. You bet. (laughs) So speaking of magic, uh, Tony, and, and you're a visual artist, and that played out in another part of your sort of ARF camera job where you were a special effects director and coordinator on Babylon 5 and other shows. How, how did you make that shift and what led you in that direction? Well, it was interesting because I, uh, I became a director and I was directing shows uh, like Coach and uh, Harry and the Henderson, a, n- a number of different things. And um, so um, I was, I had a, agent who was the only agent who actually really worked for me it seems like and he had a director that was on uh, Babylon 5 and uh, I had done I had produced a show called The Adventures of Captain Zoom in Outer Space Uh, actually my partner and I also did uh, It Came from Outer Space 2 which was a remake of the old movie and I sort of had to learn visual effects because I was the only person who was really interested in that stuff so I, I hung out with some of the really good guys in the business and learned quite a bit of stuff about it. And then when I did these other shows, I would uh, take on the position of uh, a visual effects producer or whatever. So my, uh, my agent who wanted to get me on Babylon 5 as a director um, talked to the producers and said, I got this guy, he's really, I think he'd fit in good because they were real concerned with keeping their group cohesive. And uh, so they said, well, all right. And he said, well, I think he can come on as a visual effects supervisor because they just lost their on-set supervisor. So I did about four or five shows doing that. And then uh, I was always interested mostly in the mechanics of it, not so much. I never watched outer space stuff or you know science fiction when I was a kid. Hey. <laughs> I mean, well, I, that's true you know i it was it was funny my mom didn't like it you know she thought it was so it was not good for me or something i don't know what the hell she thought but anyway so i get thrust into these you know adventures of captain zoom in outer space and this other thing doctor and doctor who i produced all the visual effects for doctor who the movie the universal i uh, i guess it was british bc uh, bbc uh, co-venture and uh and so it just sort of evolved and uh these days that would be a digital job right it's not like you're coming up with mechanical effects on the set you would just pass it off to somebody who would create it in a computer somewhere well i was right at the period where they were making a transition from um cgi and digital uh images uh from actually shooting things and compositing them and I was fortunate because I was working with these guys <clears throat> down in Santa Monica and they loved to shoot things. They, you know, they, because it was real expensive to do uh, CGI stuff. I mean, it, you know, it didn't look so great and it cost a fortune to do. So they would try to shoot everything they could and composite it. So that was what I was, you know, kind of interested in. I like to go out and shoot the mat with the plates and then, uh, you know, shoot the images, do the green screen or, motion control on one of the shows we did uh, 
Oh yeah, um, what you call it? Um, yeah, yeah, the thing you wrote, Bill. Um, oh, overload. Overload. Jeez. But Babylon Five is is where Tony and I reconnected. You I mean, were our, Lanier for five seasons on Babylon Five, Bill, right? I was the eggplant, goo 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 joob. And let me tell you, that was a hell of a gig. You get up and you're getting up at four in the morning and gluing foam rubber to your head for 12 hours. <laughs> it was a great group of people and it was a really well-written show. And I'm glad I stuck it out for five seasons. But wow, that was intense. And that's where Tony and I reconnected. We had our, our 60s, you know, child actor club badges. And then when Tony <laughs> Babylon 5, uh, it is a small club, you know, that that child actor thing it, it's it's a fraternal kind of a little organization that even if you didn't know them in the day you're kind of bonded with them in a way and you have these shared experiences that that's pretty unique and and we became really good friends i think <laughs> well you know the, the the fact that you guys worked on babylon five and of course billy on lost in space puts you in that science fiction geek nerd comic-con universe which is a rabid fan base yeah uh, and i'll tell you i had to cover that event at the san diego convention center one time and i was afraid i wasn't going to make it out of there alive it was unbelievable so are you guys because you worked on babylon 5 too tony are you guys still involved in those uh, conventions at all you know i i started doing a sci-fi fantasy comic book conventions like in the late 70s, because Twilight Zone's Lost in Space, all the early stuff, I, I was invited to be a part of that scene almost in it at its beginning. Um, of course, COVID has shut that down. Yeah. You know, uh, we did, I did a few of these uh, Zoom convention panel Q&A things last year, but it's not, you know, it's not the same. I, I remember going to the San Diego Comic-Con when you could literally sit in a hotel lobby with Stan Lee or Jack Kirby and just share a soda and, and, and talk their creations way before, you know, the Marvel universe and, and all the films of today became this giant, acceptable, really popular thing. It was almost a fringe culty thing back in the, in the 70s still. Uh, now it's, it's so big and huge and somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, you know, you go to one of the there's a hundred thousand people. You can't go out to a restaurant. You can't really walk through the dealer's room comfortably anymore. It's great that that sci-fi and fantasy has been embraced in such a great uh, commercial way, but it, it, it's also kind of you know popped that balloon that mm. was so special. <laughs> you got to play Doctor Smith on the Netflix version of Lost in Space. How did that feel? It was so great. You know, I, I read the pilot script. Of course, it takes a while to, to develop something of that, that size, that scope. And I read the pilot script. And in the pilot script, there's just this little scene where um, Parker Posey, who's such a wonderful actress and plays Dr. Smith in the new Netflix series, she uh, encounters this character who's wounded and she steals his identification. And so he's the real Dr. Zachary Smith. It's a, it was a short scene. But I, I called the producers. I said, hey, you guys, I, I don't know if you want to, to have anything to do with the, the classic old show. But I, I read the script and, man, I would love to be the real Dr. Smith. <laughs> I think it would be a nice ambassadorial way to, for me to say from the old show, you know, we're embracing the new show. And it, it's a tribute to Jonathan Harris 
from me if you're interested. And they were so enthusiastic and kind and they, they would you really do it. Would you do it? And I said, well, sure, I'd do it. And so uh, I did a couple of them as the real Dr. Smith. And uh, it's a really impressive show. I mean, uh, it looks great. Cast is wonderful. The new kid who plays Will Robinson, Maxwell Jenkins, is a wonderful actor and a really sweet guy. And uh, yeah, it was just a trip to go back home go back to the Jupiter too and, and be a part of lost in space again. I, I loved it. It was really fun. That's so Tony, cool. before we get too far into this, I, I want to talk about something a little more serious because I think there's a lot to be learned from it, which was your battle with depression earlier in your life. And you, you fought it for many years and actually developed some self-help products to help people get past it called I think battling the blues, or uh, it was a, a series of tapes. Or two or three. Videos. Yeah, talk talk yeah. about your struggle with that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. Although you know, it's it's unless you've been through it, it's hard to really visualize what's going on with people. But um, as far as I'm concerned, it's the most most debilitating thing that's that can ever happen. You know, I mean. I'd rather have my arm cut off than be in a depressive state for a period of time. And I was fortunate because um, I struggle with it without going to a doctor and, you know, going through periods. And then finally, I, you know, I went into a, a hospital and spent some time and, and the uh, antidepressants were just coming out and people were, they didn't like them. And actually the first ones I had weren't very good either. Um, the side effects were not very good. So anyway, I thought, uh, because it seemed to be a big black mark on our society that all these people are depressed, but nobody will talk about it because, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of a, you try to keep it under the rug. And so um, I did a, I did a three, I think, uh, videos for, they were, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes, I'm not sure which, for doctors to, you know, hand to their patients. And then I was, I was fortunate because I, the, the medications turned around and they, they really are amazing. I mean, I, I know there's, there's a thing such as feeling sad and having the blues and that's what a lot of people think depression is, but that ain't it. Um, it's, it's really debilitating. I mean, you know, you can't get out of bed, you can't do anything. It's, uh, anyway, I, you know, I think anybody who has any tendency towards that should go get help immediately because the solutions are fairly simple. I mean, if I didn't take my medications, I'd probably be uh, in bed asleep or something. Yeah. It seems like it's more specifically diagnosed now. It's a, it's a, it's a more recognizable problem. It's less uh, in the closet now, and, and there's less shame involved in suffering it. I mean, they advertise these um, antidepressive drugs, you know, in the middle of television shows now. So I, right. I think it's a slightly better time. Oh, uh, it's much better. It's much better. But it's still, it's still looked down. It's one of those things that you know, mental illness has sort of uh, got a bad name for itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's because it, you know, it's happening in your mind and our mind is where we think we're controlling things, right? So the thought is that, you know, that you should be able to think your way out of it. Whereas with a broken arm, it's not happening in your mind, it's happening to your arm. So it's like, hey, hey, please help my arm. My arm has been broken. But this is just as much health as your arm, 
or any other part of your body and it needs to be and it's the it's the most important part because it's headquarters right so mm-hmm. headquarters needs headquarters needs to be uh, attended to and there should be absolutely no shame especially children when they realize when they start to realize i wonder if i'm depressed or is this the normal way to feel even having those ads on tv fritz i hope it helps normalize the kids to see that oh this is something that other people have and therefore i can yeah. tell my parents I think mm-hmm. i need i need i need some some help with my mental health because there is so much help out there yeah, well, it's an illness, you know, it's, it's yeah. like uh, diabetes or any of those things, you know, you go to the doctor for it, they give you some medication for it, and it controls it, and then it eventually gets better, or whatever happens. And right. same thing with uh, depression, it's an illness, you know, and you need to get help for it. And you have to manage it, right. Thanks for Absolutely. talking about it. I well, appreciate you're, that's, you're doing a lot to help. Yeah. Uh, Billy, let's talk about other artistic careers. We'll do it with both of you guys. But you're you're an accomplished uh, songwriter and singer. You, uh, I think you had an Emmy Award nomination for uh, Adventures in Wonderland. Talk about your musical career. Uh, you know, I, I started playing guitar when I was 10. And I started uh, writing songs when I was 11. There are several episodes uh, of Lost in Space where I'm out there on a foam rubber rock with a, <laughs> a guitar. <laughs> Uh, singing and playing. I mean, I, I certainly was no Ricky Nelson, but I, I was doing that when I was a kid. And uh, it's interesting. Tony and I were talking about this recently. If you're recognized for something, being Wally Cleaver, being Will Robinson, whatever, it's so hard for people to take you out of that frame as you mature. Doesn't mean that they can't still recognize you as an actor. But, uh, you know, as, as someone who's been making music for 50 years now, uh, it's, it's kind of a blessing and a curse to have them attached, child actor, adult musician, because it, it's hard for people to say, well, let's see, he was, he was great on, on Lost in Space, so he can't possibly be somebody whose record I really want to take seriously. That's been a bit of a frustration for me. But, you know, I've also had the opportunity to make a lot of records play all over the world, tour with a lot of great people. You know, I played with Ringo and, and Brian Wilson and uh, was in America for a long time. And, you know, just to be able to have those opportunities and, and, and make records and, and be kind of uncompromising in your artistic endeavors. That, my whole life has been like that, thanks to uh, my family investing the money I made as a kid well for me and not ripping me off. And, uh, and for my own tenacious sense of self, but I've been so fortunate, you know, I've never had to have a really uh, a straight civilian job. I've always worked in the arts, whether that was writing comic books or being a producer of other projects. Uh, for the last four seasons, I've been a producer on the uh, History Channel's Ancient Aliens television show, which is, uh, you know, a study of the big questions about time and, and who's been here before us and how long does our civilization really go back. And it's, it's a real treat to be able to work in different arenas. And, okay. and for both, I'm sorry, Wizzy, for both of you, uh, doing your own creative enterprises is a way to sort of control your environment, which you don't get to do when you're part of a larger production. You can express yourself creatively with your own viewpoint with your own skills. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of a a culmination of an artistic life, but the best possible way. Absolutely. I mean, if you're an actor, which is a great gig, I understand, but 
you know, uh, you're there to memorize someone else's lines. And then a director will tell you, go stand over there and then go walk over there and then go sit down over there. Mm -hmm. So you're basically a chess piece for other people, Mm -hmm. which is which is still a very, you know, good gig. But it's a lot different than taking uh, a piece of wood and and turning it into a sculpture that you from nothing. It's it's from sitting at a piano or a guitar and finding something out of quiet and turning it into a song that people are going to remember and dig. Um, it's a, it's a, a totally different experience when you're creating something from nothing, as opposed to being a chess piece in someone else's mood. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about your new album called Good Grief? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a thank you. It's a, it's a true solo record because I, I have a studio here at the house and, and uh, I couldn't interact with other musicians over the last year so the good news is i have enough ability to play a bunch of instruments and uh these songs came out they're uh they're a reflection of what was going on in the last year uh and i played everything and wrote everything and uh it's it's on this label global recording artists out of berkeley that is a kind of an indie americana type label and i'm happy to have the uh the opportunity it's out there wherever you know music is streamed or downloaded or or the CDs are you know for sale all that it's a, it's a very personal record but it rocks pretty good <laughs> <laughs> and you had worked oh, recently yeah. with John Cowsill and Vicky Peterson and yeah. uh, I made the I made a film about the Cowsill so I, I know that quite well and they're both that. so gifted and that's called Action Skulls it, it, that's a terrific group, and I hope we'll get back together. We we we're, we've worked on the third album, uh, and we're close to finishing it, but we haven't been in the same room together for a year. Um, we can do some file sharing, you know, sending files back and forth, and we're doing that. It's not quite the same as sitting around a mic or sitting around with guitars and playing together. We were gigging, and and uh, it, those guys are the greatest singers, and 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 really wonderful bandmates and uh, we were looking forward to take going out on the road and 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 really uh promoting the stuff and you know as you know john has been in mike loves beach boys for 20 years as the drummer in that band so uh before covid they were out playing 200 gigs a year almost so it was always hard to to kind of schedule action skulls gigs for the last few years but we were looking forward to that and uh hopefully that'll be something we can do in the future. Yes. Once we T- get Tony, uh, you're you're an accomplished sculptor, and your most recent venue is um, abstract bronze work, a- and you have some international acclaim. Uh, you represented the United States at a showing in Paris back in 2008. Talk about that process and and your artistic process. That was an unbelievable situation. I was in a gallery down in Beverly Hills and um, they handled quite a few artists. And I guess uh, every year they would send uh, some of their painters and whatnot and sculptors, send photographs to um, the show was at the Louvre, which it wasn't actually in the Louvre. It was in a building that was right next to it. But That'll do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I uh, I was told. I mean, I didn't even know they had uh, had um, had uh, sent it out. And uh, all of a sudden, they said, 
they've accepted you because it was a juried show. And of course it was, I, I felt really good about it because it didn't have anything to do with celebrity because they didn't know who the hell, you know, Tony Dow was from Leave it to Beaver, but they recognized the piece that they, um, that they liked and they, uh, they asked me to come over and I did. And that was a terrific experience. So was it one piece that went or did you take a collection of your work? No, it was one piece. Yeah. There were three uh, sculptors from America that uh, were accepted and then a number of painters. And <clears throat> it's it called Unarmed Warrior. So yeah. what, what, what inspires you to sculpt? Seems like there's a lot of figures that you enjoy athleticism. What, what inspires you to, to sculpt? Well, I started out using um, wood that I find up here in the canyon. And it's, uh, it's usually been either in a fire or burned or something, and then it's deteriorated and whatnot. And so I get it in my workshop, and I sit and I watch it for a while and uh, look at different pieces. And then all of a sudden, um, an idea appears. Uh, and so I start chipping away and removing pieces that don't fit into the concept. And, uh, and that's basically how it's, how it's done. It's um, some of them, I, uh, I just finished a piece that's about 48, 50 inches tall. That's um, that I it was a commission for a guy. And uh, so I had to show him what I was doing and I was, you know, making a specific piece. Yeah, this piece is that, I, I guess you're showing this here. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the Unarmed Warrior. And uh, it's interesting because that's not my, I, w I wouldn't have chosen that, <laughs> that piece <laughs> particularly. I thought I had a lot of pieces that I liked a lot better, but, you know, I don't get to choose. They do. You don't know what's going to resonate. And right. it's, what, what's the lost wax process that you use? Well, what happens is you take the piece in, the piece that's made out of, in my case, wood generally, although in larger pieces, there'll be a lot of foam involved and different things. And uh, you take it into a foundry and they make a uh, mold of it. And sometimes like I did a big piece, it's about 10 and a half feet tall. It, it was made in like five different molds. So <clears throat> they make a mold of it and then they, um, they pour it full of wax and the wax comes out and it's exactly the same as the, uh, the thing they took the mold of. And then they, um, and then they take it and they, uh, they dip it into, uh, a, I go in and I work on the wax because I usually there are changes that I'd like to make and some additions and subtractions and whatnot. And then, uh, and then I, uh, then they take it and they, they dump the wax into um, a slurry, like a plaster kind of thing. And it eventually gets to be however thickness they want. And, uh, and then they, they put it in an oven at 1800 degrees and the wax melts out of the, uh, the mold. And so now you've got a vessel that's uh, a negative or an opposite of the piece itself. So now you then, uh, you take it and you, you pour whatever material you like, whether it's steel or um, I do bronze, a lot of bronzes or aluminum. You know, there are different things you can do, but it's a fairly complicated process. It's the way people make a lot of jewelry, rings and things, you know. Do pieces come out different than you had envisioned them? The bronzes? 
do they kind of create their own personality in, in the process during the process? Uh, not really. Once the piece is done, it's, it's pretty much done. And then, you know, I can visualize, um, how the bronze is going to look or how it's, that's why I work on the waxes. I mean, it's interesting because as a director, it's a three-dimensional sort of an art and, uh, sculpting is a three-dimensional kind of an art. So that's something that, and building, I do a lot of building and, um, that's three-dimensional. You have to be able to visualize, you know, what you're going to build and how to, you know, how to build it. And where. It, so um, that's just one of the skills I have. I when, you, when you listen, Bill, to, to Tony talk about sculpting and the, the creative process, does it feel familiar in creating a song? Um, well, Tony is, is a multi-talented creative guy. His house is just beautiful and he's built most all of it. Uh, he and his wife, Lauren, have really created a paradise out there. Um, as far as songwriting goes, it, it comes out of nowhere. I know other artists have said it's like being a, a radio. You just kind of receive this signal. You know, I can, uh, there's so many songs that I didn't even think I would ever write that came out within 15 or 20 minutes unexpectedly. Uh, things were, you know, I, I'm swimming in, or something and I'll, I'll have to get out of the pool because I just start to get a song. You don't, I don't seek them, but they find me. And I, I, I've learned never to disrespect the muse. You know, if, it, if, it's, if it's knocking on my door, I'm going to stop and listen to it. Uh, and, and there's also the craftsmanship. If, if somebody wants me to write a theme song or a song for a specific project i can sit down and do that you know i can put the chords together and i can write a melody that that'll work but that's not the stuff that i tend to want to release on my own solo things you know those are the ones that are more mysterious and just kind of arrive half-baked and you have to kind of finish them that's that maybe that's the story you get a couple verses in a chorus out of nowhere and then you go wow and then you finish it and you realize wow that's what i was thinking about Sometimes you'll get these lyrics. I mean, you can sit down and write an angry song about the government or whatever, right? But when you get these mysterious ones, lyrics, and I've, I've had songs come to me in dreams, and uh, I didn't know what they were about until they were finished and recorded and done. And then I realized, oh, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> wow. Those are do really. You, do you record cool. other artists in your home studio? I have. Sure. America's recorded here. I've worked with Barnes and Barnes here. Steve Perry from Journey here. Uh, Action Skulls did our two records here, but it isn't a, a, a business here. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. It's just a home studio. And yeah, I have friends that come over and next thing you know, we're collaborating. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. Tony's going to do show together. and tell, Weezy. We have to see. Yes, what Tony, what have you got for us? Oh, my wife, of course, said, you know, show a piece of you. Stuff. And this is wow. a piece I got out of the, the foundry. Uh, That's yesterday. quite beautiful. Just yesterday? Uh, yeah, I got it. I, I have to get a base on it. But anyway, it's kind is of... Is your hard. wife an artist as well? You said you set yes, up your studio. She, she does... Uh, well, she's very artistic. And she does... Um, she does mosaic, which... Um, which are really beautiful. I mean, she's incorporated mm. them into the house. And so, you know... Yeah, beautiful mirror that that Lauren made for us out of broken mosaic tiles. It's just gorgeous. 
Well, what are you going to call this new piece, Tony? Do you have a name for it yet? Well, this is called The Challenge. And this, this particular piece, I make nine editions. Um, so this is the second. And then I also have the third edition of nine. Oh, Are you okay. with a specific gallery where you show, or do you recommend people go to your website, or where can they see your work? Well, we can go to the website, tony-sculpture.com. It's kind of sad website because it's um, it's a little bit, um, I never got, got really put the finishing touches on it. but um, And I'm also in a gallery in Fort Lauderdale called the Lauderdale Gallery. And so you can go to uh, bolladagallery.com, I guess it is, or just uh, Google Bolada Gallery, and uh, you can see a bunch of my pieces there. Wow, it's extraordinary. Well, I'll tell you, I, I was really looking forward to talking to both of you, and uh, it was fascinating. Um, congratulations on all your various accomplishments and your various little buckets of creativity and show business. Uh, it's been it's been a blast, you guys. Thank you so much. Before we close, where would you like people to find you online, Tony? Uh, well, it's TonyDowSculpture.com. Mm -hmm. That's a website, and uh, and then the other one is the Ballada Gallery. Okay, and how do you spell that? B I L L. Oh, there it is. We got it. We got it up there. There it is, right in front of me. All right. Nice. Yeah. And how about you, Bill? Oh, uh, DannyBonaducci.com works. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, BillMoomy.com, you know, and I, and I kind of go to my Facebook page and goof around there. And, uh, you know, all the music's available at iTunes or Amazon or wherever people get music. So, uh, you know, it's all good. I can be found. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Media Path Pod and on Facebook where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content like Tony Sculptures on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying so you can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank our guests, Tony Dow and Bill Moomy. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. That was wonderful, guys. Really. Thank, thank, you so thank you, Louise. Thank you, Fritz. Hang thank tough, you guys. Stay safe. You're yeah, good. let's get you guys into the studio as soon as we're all vaccinated. We'll do it again. Well, I haven't seen you in years.